0: You're listening to
1: Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to join the conversation on facebook or at our website ohiovtheworldpodcast.com ohio versus the world is part of the evergreen podcast network go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes now here's your host alex hasty
2: Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 8, Ohio vs. Activism. And today, we're going to be talking about Molly Church Terrell, African American activist, female activist. She was born in the year of emancipation in 1863 in the South and died in Washington, D.C. in 1954 following the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court ruling, which she did play a hand in. Nearly every issue in the larger black freedom movement from the Civil War to the actual civil, what we know as the civil rights movement in the 1950s. Mary Church Terrell is either at the center or just off the frame. Born into slavery in Memphis, Tennessee, we will follow her story north as she spends time in three varied and still progressive Ohio towns of Oberlin, Yellow Springs, Ohio, and Wilberforce. Mary's story of triumph and perseverance is really a story that is not known as well as it should be. These are the stories that we love to tell here on Ohio v the World. We've got four guests. There have been two great books recently written about her after I hadn't been any books written about her. We have both of those authors. We'll go to her alma mater, Oberlin College in Northeast Ohio, just west of Cleveland. We'll speak about her legacy there and how they've preserved her memory. Don't forget, Ohio View the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. They've got a history channel that just added a great new show called Anthology of Heroes. It's an ancient history show, kind of in the mold of Dan Carlin's hardcore history. He's certainly a fan. Elliot Gates, an Australian living in London, he tells those stories of the Persians and Greeks and Romans and everything in between, all the way up to Salem Witch Trials and you know Blackbeard the Pirate. Uh, Anthology of Heroes. That's on evergreenpodcast.com. Again, look at their history channel, you see us on there. You can get all our past episodes on there. As well as go to Ohio of world or just email us Ohio of the world at gmail.com. Drop us a line there, so many of you do. We love hearing from our listeners. Whether you have story ideas, questions, you want to buy a t-shirt, any of those types of things, uh, hit us up again at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. But Mary Church Terrell, she's a great role model for anyone who's trying to be politically active now. Terrell was the first president of the National Association of Colored Women, born out of the despair of the Plessy versus Ferguson decision in the Supreme court, the infamous separate but equal ruling in 1896. She's also one of the founding members of the NAACP. But those who wish to be politically active today can really take a page out of Mary Church Terrell's book, from the ups and downs, the perseverance it takes to make actual change in this country. And she took on black issues in a time post-slavery, during Jim Crow and before the Civil Rights Age. She was facing daunting odds and still got results. So go get your protest sign. We're gonna follow the story of Mary Church Terrell, one woman's mission to change America between emancipation and Brown versus Board. It's episode eight bioverse activism. We're joined by four guests today to tell the story of Mary Church Terrell. Our first guest is historian, professor of history at the University of Delaware, Allison Parker. Allison recently authored Unceasing Militant, a biography of Mary Church Terrell back in late 2020, and it really was unceasing. Molly Church Terrell lived 90 years. She spent almost that entire century, four generations, fighting a black activist. We asked Allison simply to tell us what are some of the things that she was involved with. This was only a partial list of the things that Allison talks about in her book.
3: The title, Unceasing Militant, comes from the eulogy of her by Paul Robeson, who was a major activist and singer and performer. She had worked with him in a left-leaning group called the Civil Rights Congress. And they had done a lot of work together and he was particularly appreciative of the work she was doing in the uh, 30s, 40s and 50s with labor unions working for striking cafeteria workers. These are usually trying to help black workers gain better rights to pay, but also she was really interested in prison reform. She was against the death penalty. Um, So she was pretty fearless about taking on issues that we think of as more contemporary issues like prison reform. She was active in the peace movement. She was a suffragist. And then when women won the right to vote in 1920, then she started working on getting an equal rights amendment. And she spoke and testified at Congress multiple times over the years, trying to get an equal rights amendment. On top of that, she was a civil rights activist, and she was a co-founder of the NAACP in 1909, but also the very first president of the National Association of Colored Women. So she was a first in many, many ways, supported a broader international human rights agenda that included uh, anti-colonialism and pan-africanism she participated in different campaigns to desegregate things, whether it was the American Association of University Women, or whether she was trying to uh, desegregate restaurants and shops in Washington, D.C. So that's a very small list, but it gives you a sense of how expansive uh, she was.
2: Mary Church was born in 1863 in Memphis, Tennessee, the same year as the Emancipation Proclamation. Her parents were slaves. Tennessee would move to the Union that year, but Mary's parents and her lineage has a very complicated story. We talked with Allison Parker, history professor at the University of Delaware, about Mary's family and where she came from.
3: Molly Church was indeed born into slavery um, because she was born in 1863 in Memphis, Tennessee. And at that point, her parents were enslaved. They We're in a complicated position, as you say, though, because both of their fathers were their enslavers, their white enslavers. They were living in Louisa Ayers' master's home, otherwise known as her father's home. And when Tennessee was brought back into the Union, they became free in 1864. In
2: 1866 in Memphis, Tennessee, is what's known as the Memphis Race Riot. Riot's kind of a euphemism for massacre. 48 people were killed, 46 of them black. These types of explosions of violence happened throughout the South in the 19th century. The Memphis race riot of 1866 personally affected Molly Church Terrell. Her father, Robert Church, was shot. Her father, a successful businessman in black Memphis. We talk with Allison Parker about how a race riot helped galvanize the activism in the career of Molly Church.
3: In 1866, there was a major race riot in Memphis where uh, white police officers, who were mostly Irish, attacked Black civilians and residents, focusing especially on business owners um, who were Black. And then um, part of this was that they were upset that there were Black Union soldiers at a fort nearby. And so they were feeling quite resentful um, about their status and the threat to their status. So he was shot in the back of the head and left for dead in his saloon. He did survive, but he survived with a bullet lodged in the back of his head, which gave him migraines for the rest of his life and a lot of um, problems. But he nonetheless became a successful business owner. He owned and created and developed Beale Street, so the home of the blues. As part of this, that did include a hospitality broadly defined from houses of prostitution to uh, saloons, um, but also a lot of black businesses. So he was a major founder of what we might think of as black Memphis.
2: As Allison said, her father, Robert Reed Church, was known as the first black millionaire. And they wanted to send their daughter to get an education in the north. They decided on the city of Yellow Springs, Ohio, in western Ohio, a place I was just at last week. It's the home of Dave Chappelle. Uh, He's been doing some great comedy shows out there, uh, really fun events. Dave lives in Yellow Springs. There's incredible African-American history in Yellow Springs uh, that Dave grew up around and now celebrates today. But we talked with archivist Ken Grossi from Oberlin College, where Molly would end up going to school about her time in Yellow Springs and why she ended up here in the Buckeye State.
4: So that was the location of Antioch College at the time. And they were very much interested in giving her the best possible education around. There there were some people that had uh, recommended the model school there at Yellow Springs. Her parents felt that she would get an education in Memphis, but not the best quality. And so they chose uh, Yellow Springs and, and she had a good experience there she excelled in her studies so much so that eventually, you know, it was recommended that, you know, she go to Oberlin and eventually she would attend the college here. So, yeah, I think it was a good choice for the family, for for Mary, that she ended up in Yellow Springs. Uh, And apparently the the community was integrated such that she kind of fit in.
2: Yellow Springs, still a little hippie commune of a town and outside of Dayton, between Dayton and, and Columbus. She moved from Yellow Springs to a city of Oberlin, Oberlin west of, of Cleveland, about 35 miles, still another very liberal town here in Ohio, anchored by Oberlin College, which has been around since 1833, America's first co-educational and really multiracial institution of higher learning. Our third guest is Ebony Johnson from the Oberlin College Library. She was so great to talk with us and has so much knowledge about African-American history at Oberlin, and the story of Mary Church. We asked her about the history of Oberlin, founded in 1833, the alma mater of the subject of today's show, Molly Church Terrell.
5: Oberlin was coeducational since its founding in 1833, so um, the college admitted its first group of women students in 1837, although only three of them graduated in 1841. In 1844, George B. Vashon was the first Black student to earn a bachelor's degree from the college, followed by Mary Jane Patterson, who's another kind of well-known Oberlin alumna who graduated in 1862 with her bachelor's degree in education, making her the first Black woman to earn a degree from a college in the U.S.
2: Mary Church moved from Yellow Springs to Oberlin to continue her education. She went to the prep school there, and we talked with our guest, Ken Grossi archivist at, at Oberlin College about her time at Oberlin. She goes into the college what type of student she was, a very active student whether it's in debate, whether it was her writing, a very popular student as well, and a graduate of the class of 1884.
4: Yeah, she she ends up coming to Oberlin and going to the public schools. You know, once she graduated from the Oberlin public schools, she enrolled in the prep department at the college, which was like a high school and then eventually enrolled in the regular A-B course at the college. She was involved in monthly rhetoricals, which helped her learn her great skill of being a lecturer. Uh, She also noted that she uh, wanted time to enjoy Oberlin. And so we found out that Mary frequently went to baseball games and she actually kept score. She was here at the same time that Moses Fleetwood Walker was here, and Moses Fleetwood Walker is recognized as the first African American to play professional baseball.
2: The library that Ebony Johnson works at, our guest, and, and Ken Grossi, has been renamed in 2018 the Mary Church Terrell Library on the campus of Oberlin. They also put together an incredible digital exhibit. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to that, but so much of so many great pictures of Mary Church Terrell uh, following her career, her time in Ohio but also her career in Washington, D.C. Again, there's a link in the show notes to go check that out on the Oberlin site. Really cool work they did. There's a traveling exhibit uh, for Mary Church Terrell that they send around the state. But she graduates in 1884. She was a speaker at that commencement. We talked with Ken Grossi about her graduation and the culmination of her time in Oberlin, Ohio.
4: Yeah, the mission of tyranny was her her essay that she talked about, you know. And I think basically what she was saying was, you know, take your Oberlin education out into the world and make the best of it, you know. You know, do your best to um, to work to make all people equal and so forth. I think that was really the the gist of it. She was. Um, and she did that, you know, she did that throughout her life, not only stated that she got a good education at Yellow Springs, but her time at Oberlin was very influential in her life going forward. And she, you know, from time to time would comment on that in her autobiography in her diaries and so forth about her experiences at Oberlin College.
2: Day in 1884, that Mary graduated from Oberlin. Another African American was graduating in Boston, Massachusetts at Harvard. Robert Terrell, kind of a 19th century African American goodwill hunting. His incredible story to become a graduate is a newsworthy event. He speaks at, at his commencement as well. Our fourth and final guest is Joan Quigley, author of another great Mary Church Terrell biography in recent years called Just Another Southern Town. A reference to Washington D.C. It follows her life, especially in our nation's capital. We asked her about Molly's future husband, Robert Terrell, and his time at Harvard College.
1: When he was a teenager uh, looking for work, he went up to Boston and was able to find a job in what was then a newly opened dining hall uh, at Harvard. Waited on students, and at some point during his employment as a waiter. People he knew in Boston at Harvard encouraged him to continue his education. And he did, first up in Massachusetts uh, at a private school. And then he enrolled at Harvard as an undergraduate in 1880 and graduated four years later. He was selected to be a commencement speaker in the June ceremony. He had gone from being a laborer um, in that building to being not just a graduate, an undergraduate with a degree from Harvard, but selected to speak at commencement. And this uh, did capture some attention in the in the press. He was known uh, before the ceremony. The, this story had captured attention, I think, in the Washington Post and the other places.
2: Such a big fan of Joan's book. Just Another Southern Town. We put a link in the show notes uh, to buy that book. Such a such a great read. So much going on, not just a Molly Church Terrell biography, but also uh, just everything that was happening in the larger black freedom movement in the 19th and early 20th century. Molly graduates from Oberlin, decides to go become a teacher in a town called Wilberforce, Ohio. Wilberforce, a home for people like W.E.B. Du Bois. You can go back and listen to our episode about Colonel Charles Young, who spent time at Wilberforce, the third graduate, black graduate, of West Point, who would go on to an incredible military career. He spent time there at W.E. Du Bois. And Mary Church Terrell was there as well. Now the home of Wilberforce University, a historically black college. Wilberforce is also the home of the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center, which is part of the network of sites for the Ohio History Connection. Friend of the show, Dr. Charles Wash, still the executive director down there, doing such great work, and they have just a really cool place to go check out. So many cool exhibits they always have in Wilberforce, which is just south of Yellow Springs, also in Western Ohio, just outside of Dayton. We talk with Ebony Johnson from Oberlin College about Molly's career in education. She loved teaching and how she always thought education was the key to the black community achieving quality in America during her time.
5: Her father, Robert Church, has often been referred to the first, as the first black millionaire as a result of his prosperity and his wealth. Uh, Mary and her younger brother Thomas had a pretty kind of privileged childhood in, in Memphis um, during Jim Crow era when they grew up. Um, but despite all that, Mary was still sent north to go to school. After she earned her undergraduate degree, her father encouraged her to settle into a life of leisure, right, that you might expect for a wealthy socialite to do. But Mary, as we know, she had other plans. It's been her autobiography, um, A Colored Woman in a White Role. And she stated that she braved her father's disapprobation, right, to pursue this career as an educator that she so wanted to do.
2: It was during this time that Mary Church also got her master's from Oberlin. It's a little more of a correspondence-type question. She didn't have to be on campus for it. One of the great things in Allison Parker, our guest's book, Unceasing Militant from 2020, she talks about Mary Church's trip to Europe. She takes a trip to Europe for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years. She kept an incredible diary about it. And so much incredible stuff. She became so worldly after that, and it really changed her view on issues facing African Americans moving forward. Such a formative trip that that many you know rich white females would make in America. She came from an esteemed family in Southern Black America. We talked with Alison Parker about Molly Church's European vacation.
3: So she was uh, graduated from Oberlin. And then after she'd been teaching at Wilberforce University for a year, she thought that she would like to pursue an opportunity to go to Europe. And so within a year, she did, in fact, uh, go to Europe to study abroad. And when she was there, she was learning and, and polishing her French, her Italian, she already knew and had been teaching at M State Public School, uh, Latin and Greek. She was just an incredible linguist. So she was there for over two years and developed quite a few friendships with uh, men and women across the so-called color line that would have existed in the US. And that ended up, Uh, with her receiving several proposals of marriage, but she was interested in going back to the United States and marrying.
2: When Mary moves back to the States, she's teaching at the M Street School in D.C. and She falls in love with a famous African-American man, Robert Terrell. We talked about him, the the black goodwill hunting, I called him, from Harvard College. He was a prominent young African-American. His career was followed by many, and together with Molly Church, they would form maybe America's most prominent black power couple. We talk with our guest Joan Quigley, author of the excellent Just Another Southern Town biography of of Mary Church Terrell, about the Terrells' marriage, which would last for more than 30 years, following their wedding in 1891 that would make news itself.
1: Well, they were an African-American Washington, D.C. power couple. In the late 19th and early 20th century, they knew Frederick Douglass, they knew Booker T. Washington. They were plugged into and both leaders of uh, educated Black activists and civil rights activists. He was appointed by Teddy Roosevelt to be a municipal court judge in Washington, D.C. Roosevelt appointed. Terrell was one of two who were Black as you mentioned, every four years, he had to be reappointed by the next president and reconfirmed by the Senate. Federal judges get life tenure. He didn't have that. She didn't have the same um, boundaries and restrictions coming from political appointment. She felt and was, uh, in some respects, much more liberated to go out on the lecture circuit, for example, and speak her mind.
2: Yeah, she was She was always getting him in trouble. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes.
2: She, Mary Church Terrell did settle down for a period following her marriage to Robert in 1891. Turned down a job to be the registrar at Oberlin College. Probably would have been the first female to, to have such a position at an American university. And the Terrell suffered two miscarriages, a late term and even a child that died just days after birth before giving birth to Phyllis, their only daughter. They would later have an adopted niece but their only daughter, Phyllis, born in 1898. But you just couldn't keep Mary Church Terrell down that long. She was an incredible speaker, an incredible writer. We talked with Joan Quigley about her career on the lecture circuit. It's really how she became famous. She would go out and make speeches and make news, which would sometimes make trouble for her husband, the judge, Robert Terrell.
1: She had wanted to be a writer. It was clear in the journal she kept in Europe, in the late 1880s when she traveled and studied and lived in europe for two years a few years after oberlin she wrestled with feeling pulled as a writer and also feeling a duty uh, to do something on behalf of her race and where she landed was on the lecture circuit practically it it was a source of income her husband was was a, a a public servant a judge and by going out on the lecture circuit and traveling around the country by train and giving speeches she had her own source of income. She had an additional source of income that she was bringing into the household. I don't think uh, Mary Church Terrell was ever going to be happy just at home as a wife and mother. It just didn't work for her, (laughs) I think. Um, And just based on everything I've read, her diaries and her letters, it just didn't work for her to be at home. So going out in the lecture circuit, helped her in all those different ways. It helped her feel connected to a struggle. It helped her, as she wrote speeches, Uh, she worked on speeches with her husband. And she did make controversial statements that made the press, uh, sometimes not even just the black press. It was her way of pushing issues.
2: Mary was appointed to the Washington DC school board in 1895. It's believed that Mary Church Terrell was the first African-American woman to hold such a position in the United States. She would serve for a few years and would serve again from 1906 to 1911. We talked with Ebony Johnson about this historic appointment as a public official on the D.C. School Board.
5: Her appointment to the D.C. School Board in 1895 was historic because she was the first Black woman to serve in that capacity. So as a board member, she was able to advocate for equal treatment of Black students and faculty members in the school system, which were segregated, right? Um, So through her conversations with Black students in the school system, she knew that the effects of discrimination and not being able to compete for good jobs um, really didn't give the students much incentive to stay, stay in school and pursue higher education. So again, in her autobiography, she has a quote there that says, let us do nothing to handicap children in the desperate struggle for existence, in which their unfortunate condition in this country forces them to engage. So she was a staunch, lifelong advocate for education, and we see that thread is woven tightly into the fabric of her life.
2: Shortly after her historic appointment to the D.C. School Board, a decision came out from the U.S. Supreme Court that would resonate for over 50 years. The infamous case of Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. It's this decision by the court that upheld the idea of separate but equal institutions for blacks and whites. The different drinking fountains, the different the different schools, the different bathrooms, the different restaurants. The court's vision of separate but equal could never be achieved. It was separate but inherently unequal. We talked to Joan Quigley, a lawyer and author, about the Plessy decision. Plessy was a
1: hugely important decision in 1896 which reverberated broadly for five-plus decades, the Supreme Court upheld segregated railway seating, uh, separate railway cars, in a case that came out of Louisiana. The narrow facts of the case were that a passenger challenged segregated seating, chose to stay in the whites-only car, and then was criminally prosecuted for that. And ultimately, the Supreme Court said, yes, Louisiana, notwithstanding the 14th Amendment of The constitution notwithstanding the constitutional guarantee of equal protection louisiana can in fact have railway cars separate ones divided by race buried in plessy as dicta the you know not technically the law of the case but a comment that the supreme court makes in passing the supreme court focused on a rationale that said well surely if congress can have segregated schools in washington dc Louisiana can have separate railway cars segregated by race. That decision, that rationale, become the basis for what we know as Jim Crow in America.
2: Mary Church Terrell at this point on the D.C. school board, Mary Church Terrell, already a pretty famous activist in the African-American community, just months after the Plessy decision, she would become the first president of a new organization, the National Association of Colored Women. The NACW would prove to be a big part of her life moving forward and all these injustices that she would fight against. A lot of times it was through her work with the NACW, but it was born directly out of that Plessy decision. We talked with Joan Quigley about Mary becoming the first president of the NACW.
1: For Mary Church Terrell, personally, uh, the decision had uh, an immediate effect, as it did on other, other Black women in Washington, D.C. A few months later, that summer in July, women from all over gathered, and the result of it was the formation of the National Association of Colored Women, and Mary Church Terrell was elected the first president. At the end of this meeting in Washington, they went by train, I believe, to Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, very resonant because of John Brown's raid. Several of them had ties to Oberlin and the women and a few men posed for a photograph outside the arsenal itself coming out of the Pelosi decision very early in, uh, in its aftermath, saying we are banding together and we are going to fight this.
2: In August 1906, there's something called the Brownsville Affair. African-American soldiers in in the deep south in Brownsville, Texas, stationed at Fort Brown, were accused there was an attack on on a white woman. The next night after a curfew was installed on the soldiers, whether they were involved or not on that attack, a white bartender was killed and a white police officer was wounded. Without evidence of any kind, the soldiers were implicated by the townspeople. But without evidence, they would all be dishonorably discharged by President Roosevelt. No due process. The white officers who ran Fort Brown had said that the soldiers had all been on base that night, but it didn't matter. The military still ruled they should all be discharged. A dozen or so were eventually reinstated, but these men were no longer allowed to serve. They're no longer allowed to be in any civil service job. Many of them lost their pensions due to the dishonorable discharge. Mary Church Terrell took an active role in their defense. It became a huge issue in Congress and in the African-American community as well. And just to show you kind of where she was on the totem pole for a woman, a black woman, she strolls into the war office. Secretary of War is a man you might know, William Howard Taft, who would become the president in just two short years. Mary went to the War Department office and demanded to speak with Taft about Brownsville. And finally, when he realized he would not be able to get rid of her, they did meet. It's a story I'd never heard. Her involvement really becomes seen here in Joan Quigley's book, Just Another Southern Town. We asked her, Did her meeting with Taft have any influence on slowing down the discharges, on slowing down the Roosevelt administration's destroying of these 167 men's lives?
1: She did sit outside Taft's office uh, expecting to be seen by him when he was the War Department secretary. Brownsville itself, uh, 176 uh, black soldiers were dishonorably discharged by President Roosevelt on a rationale that they were somehow implicated in unrest uh, at a military, uh, near a military installation in Brownsville in 1906. They never had a trial. They never had the opportunity to cross-examine witnesses. Uh, There was evidence that might've helped exonerated them, um, including from their commanding officer who said they were in the barracks at the time that the unrest allegedly happened. It was a rush to judgment, it looks like from from President Roosevelt. and Mary Church Durrell went to Secretary Taft's office while Roosevelt was traveling abroad and while these uh, black soldiers had just started to receive their discharge papers, a miscarriage of justice. And she was there at the request of another activist to see what she could do in person. She was right there in Washington. And I think she had the expectation that she could turn the tide. She did eventually meet with Taft. Um, She asked him to stop the order. And he had a back and forth with her. Not long after she left the office, he did cable President Roosevelt with a request to slow down, stop the order, stop the discharges, get a rehearing. Taft didn't mention Mary Church Durrell in that cable, asking Roosevelt to slow things down, stop the discharges. But it did happen not long after he met with her. Um, Roosevelt, of course, didn't Uh, stop the discharges, didn't back down from a lot of criticism. They weren't just dishonorably discharged. They were barred from future service in in the government as civilian employees, as mail carriers. It was a stunningly broad order. Did her meeting with Taft influence the Roosevelt administration's policies? Given the, the timing, It looks like there was an effect. Certainly the newspapers um, heralded what she did. It doesn't mean that her meeting changed the course of the administration's policy. It doesn't mean that it reversed uh, an unjust order, but it did convince other activists and her that, that she had the ability to persuade
2: The center of any female activist story in the early 20th century is the fight for suffrage. You can go back and listen to our episode, Ohio vs. Suffrage, a couple years back. One of our best episodes, even on our YouTube page, you can go watch uh, that episode as well. A very important episode we did on the centennial of women's suffrage. And Mary Church Terrell, as you would expect, would be heavily involved in that fight. We talk in that episode about the famous 1913 rally for suffrage in Washington, D.C., thousands of women turn out still take another seven years until women voted in their first presidential election electing ohio's warren harding in 1920 we talk with allison parker about the fight for suffrage marriage church Terrell would be on the steps of the white house protesting president wilson just like any other important issue for women or african americans during this time mary church Terrell was on the front lines
3: with suffrage. She participated with white women in the different organizations that they founded to get the right to vote. But she also knew that Black women had their own take on why suffrage was important. And for them, the right to vote was important partially because they needed to to argue not just for their right to vote, but for their husbands, brothers, and sons' right to vote. Because even though the 14th and 15th Amendments guaranteed them those rights, by the time you get to the 1890s, they don't have them anymore in many parts of the South and sometimes elsewhere. And so she was always reminding white women about the limitations of their own project and their unwillingness to see that black men, for instance, needed to be included among the list of those who are disenfranchised, right? Who didn't have those rights. And so she was, always interested in taking on whatever issue it was from as many angles as she could. So she marched in the national march in Washington, D.C. that was in 1913, the major suffrage parade. And it's uh, well known that Ida B. Wells defiantly inserted herself into the Illinois delegation and refused to be segregated. But what is less well-known is that dozens and dozens of women, including Mary Church Terrell, also insisted on being uh, marching throughout the parade at different points. And she uh, also stood as an advocate and forced the organizers, including Alice Paul, to let the Black sorority women in Delta Sigma Theta sorority to march as a unit as part of the college women.
2: Sadly, many of these issues that Mary Church Terrell found herself involved in are still issues today. One of those was the anti-lynching bill that she tried to push through Congress to to make lynching a federal crime. It's a law that would be stopped multiple times by Southern filibusters. It wouldn't actually pass until this year, once Joe Biden signed it into law in March, the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. But Molly spent a lot of time fighting beside Ida B. Wells, a very famous African-American activist, who gets so much credit for pushing anti-lynching legislation. But Mary Church Terrell was nearly just as involved, and they were both sparked by the lynching of a friend of theirs in Memphis. So much of this goes back to injustice that she suffered in Memphis, Tennessee, her friends and her family. We talk with Allison Parker from the University of Delaware, author of Unceasing Militant, about Mary Church Terrell and the struggle for anti-lynching laws. One of the
3: striking things is that both Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell were activated by their experience of having their friend Thomas Moss lynched by a white mob in Memphis, Tennessee, along with two of his other business compatriots. Um, They had a grocery store that was in competition with a white grocery store across the street. And this was basically punishment for their success. And this opened both of them to seeing lynching as completely arbitrary and is about trying to destroy any success and power that African-Americans might achieve in the U.S. rather than as the trope and the false stereotype that whites promoted, which is that it was somehow limited to black men who had supposedly raped white women. And so that uh, was something that both of them uh, became active through this situation. And in fact, Mary Church Terrell worked with Frederick Douglass to invite Ida B. Wells to Washington, D.C., where she was living at the time in 1892, to encourage her to speak out and have a place to talk to African-Americans about the need to launch an anti-lynching movement. So from the very beginning of the movement, Terrell was there with Wells. On June 14,
2: 1922, Mary Church Terrell took part in what was known as the Silent March. 5,000 African-Americans marched in silence from the Capitol past the White House down Pennsylvania Avenue a bill that had been sponsored in 1918, the Dyer Anti-Lynching Act, to require federal penalties for state and city officials who failed to protect against lynching, was going down. The 1920s were a period of resurgent racism, not just in the South, but in the North. The rise of the KKK in the North, things we talked about, you can go back and listen to our episode in the first season about Youngstown and how they stared down a KKK rally in 1925 by literally beating them off the streets. In the 45 years since the end of Reconstruction, over 3,000 African Americans had been lynched, mostly in the South, but not just in the South. We talk with Allison Parker about the 1922 silent march that Mary Church Terrell and the NAACP, she's a founding member of this new organization, as they helped organize a march that's been forgotten in the struggle for black freedom
3: the 1922 Silent March. This was a march that was organized. uh, A lot of the NAACP efforts and the National Association of Colored Women and other Black groups really decided that they wanted to make a march where they would even hold sometimes posters uh, with images of lynching victims on it. And part of the idea was that they wanted people to see what was happening. And so it was a silent march, no one spoke. Uh, I think they wore white and tried to just emphasize the tragedy and the terror, but that coincided with a period of a rise of the Ku Klux Klan uh, in the United States, including in the North. And so Terrell was really determined to try to force this issue of anti-lynching at the federal level through legislation. Unfortunately, that anti-lynching legislation never passed. And it was only just in the past uh, few years that I think actually 2020, that the Senate decided to issue an apology for never having passed a lynching law.
2: One year later, in 1923, the Daughters of the Confederacy were attempting to build what was called a Black Mammy Monument on the U.S. Capitol. A Black Mammy, the slave caretaker of a white master's children. And somehow, in some perverse way, this, the Daughters of the Confederacy and the South in general were trying to honor the role of the Black Mammy. St. Mary Church took a very hard line against this and helped stop this monument from being built. We think about all these debates today over statues And look, I'm fine with tearing down any Confederate statue. That doesn't mean I think a statue of Abraham Lincoln should be defaced or the statue of William McKinley that came down in California. But Mary was on the front lines in 1923. In the 1920s is a time when many of these statues that we find problematic today were built, explaining to a white audience why a statue honoring an African-American on the Capitol, why would black people fight against that? People in the 20s couldn't understand it. Allison Parker did a great lecture on C-SPAN during the pandemic about this is really what brought this fight to my attention. Sam Mary Church Territory, she wrote an incredible op-ed, but it starts, colored women all over the United States stand against the idea of creating a black mammy monument in the capital of the United States. The condition of the slave woman was so pitiable, hopelessly helpless, it's difficult to see how any woman, whether white or black, could take any pleasure in a marble statue to perpetuate her memory. We talked with Allison Parker about Mary Church Terrell's fight against the Black Man Monument on the Capitol.
3: In the early 1920s, this is this time of a rise, a white supremacy of the KKK, but also of a nostalgia for slavery. And this, a white myth that Black people enjoyed being enslaved, and that they were part of a happy family of whites and Blacks together. And a lot of that nostalgia focused on the figure of the so-called black mammy and this idea that black women uh, loved their charges, their white charges, which they may indeed have done, but almost to the exclusion of their own black children. And so there was this fiction that white women were participating in. And so it was the United Daughters of the Confederacy. These women got the Democrats from the South to put forward a bill to build a so-called Black Mammy Monument on the national Capitol uh, grounds. And this was such a horrifying thought to Terrell and many of her contemporaries. Uh, in her case, her grandmothers and even her mother played the role of being a so-called black mammy and that she nursed white children. And the idea that these women would be lauded in this very stereotyped and incredibly demeaning way um, was so offensive to her that she launched a major campaign. She wrote a very searing editorial in the paper that got picked up from DC and syndicated across the nation. And she and others really just said, it's not okay to take this mythical figure who was likely raped by her white master, who was not allowed to be a mother to her own children and was separated through sale, right? On many occasions, how this could possibly be something that we would celebrate, she said, I just don't know. And these articles did get syndicated in white papers as well, and did generate enough of uh, an awareness that this was potentially problematic, that the bill did, in fact, get tabled in the House. And so it didn't go through, fortunately. But it does show why it matters that we have monuments and what monuments can mean. And her point was that this would be an affront to all Black Americans who would be confronted with this horrible reminder of slavery, but in a way that was even more offensive because it was designed to celebrate it.
2: Joan Quigley's book, Just Another Southern Town, the title is about Washington, D.C., where she lives. And a lot of this book takes place, a lot of Molly Church Terrell's activism takes place in her hometown of D.C. Washington, D.C. was segregated. It was our nation's capital, but it set an example. It might be considered a northern town these days, but certainly not in the 1920s. 30s and 40s. And following the war, it became a problem noticed by white politicians. The treatment of black and brown delegations and their ambassadors in the city was reprehensible. It reflected incredibly poorly on what was supposed to be this beacon of democracy, especially following the war when Washington, D.C. kind of became the world's capital, the Western world. We talked with Joan Quigley, our guest and author, about segregation in Washington, D.C., and how it became a problem for the United States globally.
1: Washington D.C. in the in the early nineteen fifties, um, when Mary Church Terrell started her challenge to segregated D.C. restaurants, Washington was a southern city. It had segregated restaurants, segregated movie theaters, segregated hotels. Only white women were employed in department stores. At the end of World War II, Washington had also emerged as the global center of democracy. It was that post-war moment when uh, the United States had emerged as, as a world power. Segregation in Washington, D.C. at the end of World War II in the late 40s and early 50s was a geo- Political liability, because as you mentioned, there was the the hypocrisy, and there were also geopolitical ramifications when diplomats in Washington with dark skin were treated as if they were American blacks. To activists after World War II, it was. Definitely a priority uh, desegregating Washington, D.C., including with Mary Church Terrell at the forefront because that global geopolitical weakness of having a Jim Crow capital was, they knew, um, something they could exploit.
2: The desegregation of Washington, D.C. in the 1940s and early 1950s became Mary Church Terrell's final struggle. She called it her most difficult battle She's in her late 80s at this point. She's somebody who should be resting at home, but instead she's on the streets. She's picketing restaurants. She's picketing department stores. All these department stores in black neighborhoods that only had white workers. Restaurants where African Americans were not allowed to dine. Hotels. Mary Church Terrell and her fellow activists decide to stage an intervention. Thompson's Restaurant in Washington, D.C. This would lead to a, a Supreme Court case involving Mary Church Terrell and Thompson's Restaurant. We talk with Joan Quigley about their plan to bring segregation in our federal capital under the national spotlight.
1: Thompson's restaurant uh, in Washington D.C. was a cafeteria, a few blocks from the White House. It's the kind of place where you go in with a tray and you food's behind glass, and you pick what you want and pay for it and go sit down. Mary Church Terrell went into Thompson's restaurant with, uh, I believe, three other activists on January twenty seventh, nineteen fifty. Their plan was to go into a a segregated Washington restaurant and asked to be served. And if they were denied service, they would use that uh, as a test case, to file a test case to challenge uh, segregated seating in Washington restaurants and waited in line with their trays. A few of them made a little bit of progress down the line, and the manager came in and stopped their progress and refused to serve them. There was a little back and forth between Uh, Mary Church Terrell and the manager and left the restaurant without being served and used that as the basis for challenging segregated Washington restaurants.
2: and there's a link in the show notes to buy Just Another Southern Town, It talks about some of these justices who have ended up overturning Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court decision that Mary Church Terrell would be fighting against for nearly 60 years. One of the justices was Harold Burton, a former Cleveland mayor and Ohioan who makes an appearance in this story. He was a Republican. He was a friend of President Truman. He was appointed. He was a lawyer, not really a practicing one, but a senator from Ohio who would end up be a leading voice on the court in favor of civil rights. Talking with Joan about Justice Burton, we'd end up finding out she grew up in the Cleveland area as well.
1: I uh, should disclose I was born in and grew up in Cleveland. So I, (laughs) in Pepper Pike, Justice Burton wasn't someone whose name had ever appeared on my screen in law school, the graduate of Bowdoin. He was a graduate of Harvard Law and a former Cleveland mayor who was then also U.S. Senator from Ohio and served at the same time as Harry Truman. And he then became one of Truman's appointees to the Supreme Court. Truman appointed a number of his Senate friends and and cabinet secretaries to the court. Burton had never been a judge, hadn't practiced much law, and then found himself on the Supreme Court, surrounded by some intellectual heavyweights like Felix Frankfurter and Justice William O. Douglas, what was so fascinating to see in Justice Burton's papers in the Library of Congress was, I think, initially a sense, perhaps, of being overwhelmed by by where he was. He didn't have the background in deciding cases. It took him longer when he was assigned. Uh, he wasn't the most productive. Justice on the bench. And going through his papers, I had the feeling of someone who was preserving notes that the other justices passed him on the bench. He was taking newspaper clippings, including from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. He was recording day to day very much what was happening. He kept a diary. He uh, worked six days a week. He had a tremendous work ethic, which I think is one of the reasons Truman appointed him. He went for walks around the Capitol uh, to get exercise and and logged in his diary, whether he swam or whether he worked out, whether he walked. Um, Just, uh, I think, um, kind of a surprise to me. An early advocate of civil rights from the pre-Brown cases, it looks like from the conference notes and the drafts opinions a steady and stalwart supporter of, of civil rights on the, on the court. And I think at one point in one of the conferences that justice had after, after one of the uh, pre-Brown decisions, even referenced some issues with which he dealt as Cleveland mayor, um, might've been integrating nurses in the hospital. And he was also a member of the NAACP uh, in Cleveland, a Republican and a World War I veteran.
2: In June 1953, the Supreme Court would decide the Thompson case, Mary Church Terrell's restaurant case in Washington, D.C. They would decide unanimously that it was illegal, unconstitutional. The segregation of Washington restaurants and accommodations would end. Mary would be eating in that restaurant days later and be on the front page of the paper. But the role of Thompson in the larger struggle that would lead to the Brown versus Board of Education decision one year later is kind of lost to history. Joan Quigley's book kind of... Joan Quigley's book is really the first time I knew about this case and its role in ultimately changing segregation laws across the country. We talk with Joan Quigley about the importance of Thompson and Mary Church Terrell's unanimous victory at the U.S. Supreme Court.
1: Why isn't Thompson more known? I was curious about that from the beginning. The same day the Supreme Court issued the Thompson decision unanimously on June 8th of 1953, The court also ordered all of the school degradation cases, including Brown. There were five of them bundled together. They issued an order that day saying that the school cases would be rescheduled for a second round of oral argument. That date lineup was interesting. Was Thompson somehow a necessary step to getting them to that point? And it's true that Thompson was narrowly confined to both the location of Washington DC and to the specific laws on which the case was based. And they were reconstruction era DC ordinances that prohibited segregation in public facilities. On the other hand, the justices were wrestling, obviously with the school cases. They weren't ready yet to, deal, to, to issue the Brown decision they were struggling and divided internally they were concerned about the implications of integrating public schools across the country and along comes this relatively low profile decision which deals with the issue that's right outside their doorsteps nine justices who have been in and around washington dc for a long time they'd worked in the senate the senators some of them had served as you know high level cabinet officials Uh, They were politicians, some of them, many of them. They'd run for election. They'd served at the high levels of government. They were familiar with what was happening in Washington, D.C., with the architecture of Jim Crow in that city and with the liabilities that that posed.
2: Look, the U.S. Supreme Court has made some bad decisions over time. We've talked about Dred Scott on on this podcast before, the Korematsu decision in our Japanese interment incarceration episode last year, one of my favorite episodes we've done. Go back and listen to that one, Ohio versus incarceration. But Plessy versus Ferguson is right there at the top, separate but equal, basically legalized Jim Crow. And in that decision, there's this dicta, as she discussed, a note from the justices that if Congress can allow segregation of Washington, D.C. schools and restaurants, then certainly the case in Plessy, which is out of Louisiana, can do the same with their city transportation we talked to joan quickly one last time about the thompson case and how justice harold burton of cleveland ohio and, and the rest of the court how this thompson decision was really a forebear of the brown decision to come one year later
1: thompson gave the justices the opportunity to reach back to that rationale in Plessy, not explicitly not on the face of the decision because they don't cite Plessy in the decision, but they, they knew, and especially I think Justice Douglas knew that there was that problematic language in uh, Plessy versus Ferguson about segregation in the nation's capital. That rationale at the heart of Jim Crow that said, if Congress can have segregated schools in Washington, segregated railway cars in Louisiana are not a constitutional problem. Mary Church Terrell's case gave them the opportunity in a very limited way to make a decision to get at that notion of the segregated capital without going near schools, without all of the emotional difficulties and the legal difficulties that came with integrating schools, because as I'm, I'm sure you know, one of the school cases bundled with Brown dealt with segregated schools in Washington, D.C. There were five. One of them was Washington schools. They very quickly took Mary Church Terrell's case, decided it on an expedited basis, told the NAACP, no thanks, we're good. We don't need you to file to the court brief. We don't need you to participate on this one. And they issued a unanimous decision, which had the effect virtually immediately of just what Mary Church Terrell and the activists wanted of saying segregated restaurants in the nation's capital are not okay. Within a few days, restaurants in Washington started serving. Mary Church Terrell went back to Thompson's restaurant. They served her. Journalists, photographers were there to record the whole thing. But it was a test case, a trial balloon by the justices to deal with the situation right outside the court. When they took the step, nothing happened. There wasn't disorder in the school.
2: The famous Brown v. the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas case was decided unanimously by the Supreme Court in May of 1954. The landmark decision in which U.S. state laws establishing racial segregation in schools and public schools was unconstitutional. Separate but equal was dead. Separate was inherently unequal, and the court recognized that under their new Chief Justice Earl Warren. Mary Church Terrell was alive to see it. Although she would die later that year at the age of 90, Molly Church is pictured holding the newspaper. Her lifelong struggle against segregation had a watershed moment. We talked with Allison Parker, historian and professor at the University of Delaware, about Mary Church Terrell and the Brown decision.
3: Yes she was alive and was is photographed with the headlines from the 1954 decision and in that those images she's about 90 years old so she was very proud and happy that she lived to see the day when the Supreme Court admitted that uh, segregation was wrong and that it perpetuated inequality and actually created inequality that you couldn't have separate but equal, that that, that was just not a possibility, especially when it came to the laws. And it was really important to her. Uh, to see the progress that was coming in the 1950s, especially when we're really at the beginning of what's officially called the the civil rights movement. Uh, I place her in what historians call a longer black freedom struggle, a longer version of the civil rights movement that started far beyond the Reconstruction Era amendments the 13th, 14th and 15th, which so soon were not being realized
2: Thanks to the help of folks like Ebony Johnson, Ken Grossi at Oberlin College, the legacy of Molly Church Terrell has seen a resurgence in recent years. We put a link in the show notes to that great digital exhibit, the library there named after her. This Oberlin alum, Molly Church, would surely still be fighting today if she, if she were alive. We talk with Ebony about Molly's legacy at Oberlin and how she sees the lessons of Molly Church Terrell today.
5: I'm also an Oberlin graduate. Nice. Nice. So- I learned on in my Oberlin education that this is a place that teaches its students to be what a classmate of mine called intensely critical analytical thinker. And so I think it's easy to make the connection and gender equality are inextricably. linked. It's clear that we're not there yet. And sometimes like right now, to me, it feels like we're actually going backwards. And I'm pretty sure that Mary would agree with that. Absolutely. And I'm sure that if she were still alive, She would still be working toward that end.
2: There's a link in the show notes also to buy Unceasing Militant from 2020 from our guest, Allison Parker from the University of Delaware. Allison's a history professor, and also she's got some some great shows that she did on C-SPAN talking about Molly Church as well. But we asked Allison, what can today's activists learn on the left and the right from the story of Mary Church Terrell?
3: The fact that it's called unceasing militant is exactly the point that it's unceasing. <laughs> and it's hard when you're a young activist to realize how long these kinds of changes take and how much persistence and dedication they take. In some ways, it should be not discouraging, but encouraging, because what you can't do is give up. And what you need to do is act on multiple fronts at once. She believed in taking on these issues in a whole variety of ways. But it was never just a, well, I'll try this one thing. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to give up. (laughs) And so I think That what you need to think about as a young activist is that you don't want to give up and that you need to think of it as something that can be multifaceted, that you're going to take this on in a variety of ways. And you shouldn't shy away from coalitions, even as you see the limitations in the partners that you're working with, because you can also do other kinds of work separately from the people you're trying to work with together.
2: As we close today. We're joined again by Joan Quigley, lawyer and author of the excellent book, Just Another Southern Town. If you just look at Molly Church's gravestone, 1863 to 1954, two landmark years in the black struggle, emancipation to Brown versus the Board of Education. The idea of someone like Mary who was born into slavery and then sitting there and reading the paper after the Brown decision it is really inspirational. We go back and we talk about Mary Church Tarot came from a family of wealth. She didn't need any of this. Her husband ended up being a judge. She had all this money down in Memphis that her family had. She didn't need to do any of this, but she took her privilege and she turned it into effective activism. We talk with Joan Quigley about her legacy.
1: Well, Mary Church Trill was born in 1863, the year of the Emancipation Proclamation, and she died in 1954 not long after the Supreme Court decided Brown versus Board of Education. So her, the natural narrative arc of her life was from the Emancipation Proclamation to Brown. Throughout her life, she witnessed triumph at the end of her life, in particular with the decision she won unanimously from the Supreme Court. She witnessed decades of retrenchment. She spent much of her adult life as an activist fighting and took on the most important battle as an octogenarian. She was also out on the streets with other activists picketing Jim Crow restaurants.
2: And she's 87, 88 years old, right?
1: Right, right. She's being photographed outside Hex department store after it finally stopped having a segregated lunch counter. And she's there in her hat and coat with a cane. I think what resonates anew is how something like a Supreme Court decision can resonate, like the Plessy decision can resonate and reverberate for more than 50 years. It takes time and new justices on the court, and it takes persistent effort to turn the tide. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history. There's so many books you need to see. I
5: like reading. And I like reading. The tip a
1: canoe and Tyler to From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue. Edison and a man on the moon. So many books, which will we choose?
5: I like reading. I like reading.
2: We've got two book recommendations today, both from our guests. Of course, Just Another Southern Town from Joan Quigley, An Unceasing Militant from Allison Parker, two incredible biographies of Mary Church Terrell, we talk with Joan about why did she write this book? She's living in D.C. She comes across the Terrell House, and this whole story is opened up to her.
1: Came from my interest in uh, her story and in this case came about sort of gradually and then all at once. Um, I'd always been interested in the civil rights movement, thought at one point I would be a civil rights lawyer. That's why I wanted to go to law school. I didn't know Washington, D.C., Had segregated restaurants. And um, I had lived in Washington on and off for a few decades at that point. And I wondered, 1953, that's a year before Brown, why haven't I heard of this decision? I liked constitutional (laughs) law when I was in law school. Uh, There was a lot of the law school curriculum that I really thought was not very exciting. But con law I liked, con law I paid attention to. Why didn't I know about this decision? Why didn't I know about segregation in Washington, DC? I had been a lawyer for the federal government, you know, in the areas where she was waging her, her struggles, just a few blocks from Hex Department Store. And, and I also realized that much of the research was in Washington, uh, which is helpful because. Most of the Supreme Court justices at the time, their papers were at the Library of Congress. Um, A lot of the she intersected her political life, her husband's life with a lot of presidents. And most of their papers were also at the Library of Congress. So that gave me the and her papers and her husband's papers were also at the Library of Congress. So that gave me the ability to start pulling records and files and, and learning more and the more. I looked into it the more I wanted to know more about the court at the time. It seemed like such a pivotal uh, transitional moment in the Supreme Court. And the idea that they were able to decide her case unanimously while they were too divided to decide Brown was always just a thread in which I wanted to pull more.
2: Thank you so much to Joan Quigley for joining the show. And our other book recommendation, Unceasing Militant by Allison Parker. We talked with Allison just about the research for this book. It's a story like we said that has is, is not seen enough attention and how do you find enough information to write such a detailed and, and an interesting book, these primary sources that she found she working with with Oberland and other colleges where Mary Church Terrell's papers are. And, and she's so linked to all these events from, from Reconstruction, through Jim Crow, through the 1920s into the civil rights, the early civil rights movement. We talked with Allison Parker about her research on this book.
3: Well, it was an exciting thing to write Mary Church Terrell's biography. And there are some major holdings of her work that um, were crucial, including the Library of Congress and Howard University, as well as the University of Memphis uh, hold the Church Family Papers and then the Terrell Papers. But one of the things that I was uh, very fortunate to be able to do is also to meet the Terrell's family and be able to get access to some additional papers and uh, diaries and love letters between her and her husband, and some other things that were really crucial in expanding on a sense of who she was as a person and how her personal life connected with her public and professional and political life. And um, in that case, those were the papers that we ended up Helping to facilitate the donation to Oberlin College, so that was an exciting moment of being able to take those papers and know that they would be saved and preserved in such good in, in such a careful and good way by the Oberlin archivists.
2: Thanks to Allison Parker for joining us. Two great authors with two great books on on Molly Church Terrell. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. There are links in the show notes to buy those books. And a special thanks to Ken Grossi, the archivist at Oberlin College, and Ebony Johnson, her work with the uh, Mary Church Terrell Library. And thank you so much to them for joining us. We could have talked to all four of these guests forever. I mean, they're so interesting in their knowledge of Mary Church Terrell's story and her legacy, and the work they've done to help preserve that and promote it. Very important work, and we really appreciate everything they did everything they brought to these interviews with us. That'll do it for today. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram at Ohio V the World Podcast. We're even on Twitter at Ohio V the World. We're not as active on there as we'd like to be. We're part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com. Check out all their history shows and all our old episodes are on there as well for you to enjoy. We've gotten so many great messages from folks that are just discovering the show and going back and listening to the entire archive. We're coming up on 100 episodes, so we got to get a plan together for to how to celebrate that 100th. I'm not sure if it's this season or the start of next. Uh, we'll go back and find that out for you. But thank you so much. And again, rate and review the show. Uh, we said we'd read one on on here. And thanks to RBLYS who wrote, as a lover of all things history, I enjoy this approach. I like how Alex uses a variety of resources to tell the story. I'm a new listener. And this will be a podcast tops on my list. Thanks so much. Get on there and rate and review the show. On iTunes or wherever you listen to your shows, Spotify has a review uh, that you can get on as well. Uh, And that helps really bump us up the ratings. And thanks so much for listening. It really makes all the hard work that we put into the show worth it to know that so many of you out there are listening and sharing our episodes. We'll be back next time with an episode that we've been trying to put together for a long time. You can hear it in our I Love Reading song, Thomas Alva Edison, the inventor of, of light, the inventor of so many things. His incredible story will bring to life born here in ohio we'll talk about edison's career with the leading edison scholars in the in the united states and try and bust some of those myths of thomas alva edison one of the most famous ohioans if not one of the most famous americans looking forward to bringing that one to you here in two weeks we've got a few more episodes left as we continue the second half of season seven thanks again to everyone for listening to ohio versus the world enjoy the rest of your summer we'll see you in a couple weeks